Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Hello, Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance, and I'm excited to share with you today about my latest article on Educational Renaissance, my eighth article in this series where I propose replacing Bloom's taxonomy of educational objectives in the cognitive domain with Aristotle's five intellectual virtues. And in this article, I explore the idea of practicing practice and two particular types of practice, what's called purposeful or deliberate practice from both Aristotle and modern research on elite performance. So the title is Practicing in the Dark or the Day, Well-Worn Paths or Bushwalking, Artistry and Moral Virtue Continued. I know that's a long title, but I'm trying to capture in a couple different ways this distinction between when we are practicing in a sort of cloudy and unclear way where we're not sure exactly if we're getting where we want to go or when we have this clear laid out set of steps to follow and potentially a very skilled or master coach helping us get there and diagnosing particular practice exercises for us. And I think this plays in for Aristotle or has a connection for Aristotle to the difference between um, certain types of arts and also morality and training in excellence itself. It's very interesting in the book two of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he takes a lot of time to take moral virtue or excellence on the one hand and the specific excellence of artistry or craftsmanship, techne, that he will explore later and to compare those with one another play them off one another near the beginning. This is, I think, an, a rich gem and underlooked uh, section of Aristotle's ethics and helps us think through the value in particular of replacing Bloom's taxonomy, which completely separates out something like the affective domain, how we um, think, like feel about things and how we in, engage with the world around us from the cognitive domain. And instead you can see that here in Aristotle, these are, are connected. They're different in some ways as we'll discuss, but they are connected. And in our, our last talk or lecture or article, we talked about how artistry or craftsmanship on the one hand and moral virtue or that sort of excellence are joined um, by this process of habit development that the fact that we as human beings have habits that are wired into us that are not just mental but bodily, not just bodily but mental in every case. We know now about the neural networks of our brains and how those work, how we are wired together to have in some ways some stock responses. And there's really a Copernican revolution in terms of neurobiology that's been going on over the past couple decades as um, neuroscientists have been discovering the role of myelin. Myelin is this white fatty substance that wraps around 
neural networks. So we're not just focused on neurons themselves that are firing, but also how those networks of neurons are wiring together. And that's how everything that we do from memory to reading, writing, running a four minute mile, showing courage in the face of danger, all of that has a biological or physiological basis in the neural networks of the brain. Even if we know as Christians that we can't simply reduce to be reduced to matter and electrical signals. We are more than that, but we are not less. We do have those things as part of us and we should expect that from a Christian perspective. We are embodied souls as Clark and Jane say and point out in their liberal arts tradition. So I close the final talk, the last lecture, with um, bringing up for you Hebrews 5.14, where it says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice that phrase, constant practice, that our, our moral training and discernment actually develops by constant practice in distinguishing good from evil. And my point is to make that connection between habit and practice and exercise and morality. Uh, we of course all know that practice helps develop artistry or craftsmanship or one kind or another, but Aristotle's point that he makes in the Nicomachean Ethics is that these two are alike in that way. We're going to explore some ways that they're different as we go on, but um, that is a, an important foundation for us to get. And I want to develop that thought a little bit more by referencing another scripture passage, not the author of Hebrews this time, but Paul has that famous statement to Timothy where he says, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7, that word for train is the word gymnazo in Greek, from which we get gymnasium, gymnastics. It has this strong physical exercise sort of note to it. And when he says to train yourself for the purpose of godliness, that's the Greek word for piety. So it's the word eusebeia, and it has in mind the idea of the sense of duty and obligation to the divine realm, to our country or city-state and to our family most immediately? Are, are you having the disposition to pay back what you owe to fulfill your obligations in love? Clark and Jane defined it as the proper love and fear of God and man. I think that captures a lot of the aspects of piety. But Paul is saying, Timothy, um, as a pastor, as a Christian, you need to engage in the sort of physical exercise-like activities for the purpose of this broader or deeper or uh, more spiritual goal of piety. So as Christians, we can even see that there's this deep connection between this bodily training idea and the spiritual training that we are to undergo as disciples. Now, Paul was actually developing this idea from a a great philosophical tradition even by his time. So if we go back for a moment to Plato's dialogues and how Socrates would have some of his famous conversations even in the palestra or gymnasium where that wrestling training, that military exercise regimen would occur. At a few different points he compares his method of dialectic, his dialogue method to bring 
his students to a greater recognition of the truth to a wrestling match and talks about how he has a furious love in pursuit of truth. I believe that's in Theotetus. So we've already got this kind of connection of, or analogy you might say, of physical exercise to this higher mental training for the purposes of both moral virtue and philosophy. And we could see that also in uh, thinkers like Isocrates. So there's this developed tradition that goes into the Stoics of the connection between bodily training and mental, moral, or even philosophical or spiritual training. So we've got that piece in place, and you can see this connection then between artistry, specifically the artistry of training the body, and then um, mental training and moral training and the love of wisdom itself. And so I want to make this connection here too to for us. If you're um, a fan of the liberal arts tradition by Clark and Jane, um, and you've ever looked at kind of the opening pages of their book, they do have this tree representing the liberal arts tradition. And some of what they add is uh, the, the idea of piety as well as gymnastic as being so crucial or central to early education, but the whole of the liberal arts tradition education as well. So you can see those two connected in what I've said here. But one of the other like subtle things that you might notice is that the gymnastic part of that trunk actually kind of weaves into the quadrivium. And so they're referencing in a way this mental, first physical training leading up into a sort of mental training of gymnastic exercise or mathematical exercises. I think that connection's there, but there's also the connection to the, the moral training and the moral virtue and philosophy that I've talked about. Um, as we can see clearly in both Plato and Isocrates, for instance. So we've got this foundation here, first step done, of this connection between training and habit and the higher virtues of the spiritual and philosophic life. What I want to bring in here now is the idea of deliberate versus purposeful practice deliberate versus purposeful practice. And I'm primarily drawing from the work of Anders Ericsson, who is a leading scholar on this, in a way, new field of elite performance, where um, he began to study how exactly great chess players would become so incredibly great and surpass the chess players of 100 years ago by far, of how um, Olympic athletes would keep pushing the bounds of what we would think would be physically impossible for human beings to do, of how great musicians follow this step-by-step -step process of becoming incredible on their violin or whatever it may be, and um, surpass even the best performances from earlier. And he makes the point that what he and his fellow researchers were looking for was this sort of field to define what they called deliberate practice. Because what they had discovered, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell and others have kind of riffed on their work, and there's been a series of books kind of developing this idea that it's not really inborn talent that these great and elite performers had. It's actually 
the hours and hours and hours, 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours of practice regimen that they went through, utilizing the ideas and thoughts and insights, wisdom of the great teachers in that area. It's really about those chess players studying all the best, most intense chess games and creating mental models in their minds in order to be able to surpass those who went before, not because they had a better working memory. In fact, the, the most high elite chess players often have a worse working memory in some ways than those who go on their natural strengths and get so far. It's because of the sheer weight of hours of quality practice, deliberate practice. And so there is this distinction then between deliberate practice and what he calls just purposeful practice. He says there are a number of areas where we just don't have the opportunity or ability to have that clear set of goals and feedback where we know we have kind of a worked out path, a well-worn path to how to get to excellence in a particular area. And he, he mentions things like hobbies like gardening or um, business consulting, professions like teaching, where we don't have a clear process, you might say, a set out apprenticeship model that reliably gets um, students of that craft to success through a deliberate training regimen. That doesn't mean that we can't get better in those areas. So he talks about how, you know, it's, it's just different, right? Purposeful practice, we can actually get better in those areas. You can become a better teacher, but it's gonna be a little bit more cloudy and it's a little bit more complex. And one of the points that we make here is that it's similar with moral virtue moral virtue also is more like purposeful practice. It's more like uh, bushwalking than, you know, marching on the Via Appia. The way is less clear. You have to feel it out as you go, backtrack, cut, be looking constantly for where you are. Use that compass if you have it. And so, you know, there's an important distinction here between whether we're operating in an area where we have a clear set of steps to get somewhere and another area where we don't necessarily know where we're going for sure. And, you know, back to you think about deliberate practice and, and how that works and how we can advance. I think a great example of this process that I share in the article is the example of Roger Bannister, who at the age of 25 broke the four minute mile mark in 1954. And this was so astonishing because many, um, I think even medical professionals as well as elite athletes at the time thought it was actually physically impossible for a human being to run a mile in less than four minutes. This was the accepted view. And when he broke the four minute mile barrier, that sent shockwaves waves around the world. And um, a few other athletes were then able to do so shortly after him. And the crazy thing is that since he did that in 1954, more than 1400 male athletes have broken the four minute mile barrier including 
some high school students who have obviously had less time to develop to that point. And just think for a moment about how the development of coaching techniques, the development of proper practice regimens that ideally push the human body, that ideally challenge the male athlete, say, who's trying to run at that level, would get better and better. They'd learn more about how to not push the body too far in certain ways and then push it just a little bit beyond in other ways. And then the very fact of knowing that it was possible also would inspire this sort of improved coaching and practice regimens. That's the deliberate practice that Anders Ericsson is talking about. And I think I just want to, I didn't make this connection clearly in the article, but I think that knowing that puts a, a spin on our understanding of the arts, the, the liberal arts specifically, and the fact that they're called well-worn paths in some way. So there's actually been a detailed knowledge that we've gained about how to help achieve, help a student achieve mastery in say the art of grammar or dialectic or rhetoric or arithmetic, music, astronomy, or geometry. These are well-worn paths. And uh, so we should rely on the tradition of proper coaching of them. And I believe that coaching is the right way to think about it. It's, it is teaching, but it's a specific type of teaching that I wanna draw your attention to here. Well, let me pause and then just step back and think about, for instance, before we make the jump again to moral virtue, this category of artistry or craftsmanship as an intellectual virtue. Remember, it's, it's got neural networks at its basis, even for the four minute mile runner. All those embodied skills and abilities find their basis in the brain and uh, involve a certain type of knowledge as well. And for Aristotle, this virtue is techne. This is craftsmanship or artistry that encompasses quite a host of things. And so in the article, I point you back to my outline from earlier, which I restructured a little bit for the five intellectual virtues of Aristotle, but I put five subcategories under artistry. And I'm just trying to gesture into the different directions that Aristotle has in mind here. And I think would bring this word into our understanding and our culture in a few ways. And the first one I list is athletics, games, and sports. I believe this is an area of artistry or craftsmanship. And the gymnastic training that we talk about is part of that. Um, but I believe also that there are a few others. So B is the common and domestic arts. And I use a slightly different definition of this or the common arts than Chris Hall. I include some things in other categories. He has just three categories, common arts, fine arts, and liberal arts. I'm breaking it into at least five categories here just to make more distinctions. So I've got athletic sports and games of some kind or another. I've got B, common and domestic arts, then C, professions and trades. So all the different types of professions and trades that have been in use throughout human history, I'm referencing here. But then there's um, D, fine and performing arts. All those great areas of artistry 
that in some ways point more towards beauty and communication in terms of the fine and performing arts. And then lastly, fifth, but not to be overlooked, the liberal arts. And as I'll get into in later articles here, viewing all these in the same category as arts, as areas of artistry or craftsmanship, I think has a number of very practical implications for how we teach, how we train, how we set up our schools that would change and shift things from a Bloom's taxonomy sort of mindset. And as we know, some of those areas have deliberate practice regiments. And what we really need to do is get master coaches in our schools in order to train in those areas. If you wanna see excellence, arte, in those areas of techne, of artistry or craftsmanship, we need master coaches. That's what you need. And you need they need to follow the right sort of process and engage, help students engage in deliberate practice as much as possible. But some of those areas do not necessarily um, have a deliberate practice mode. It's more like purposeful practice that we're going to be getting into. And even in some areas where there might be one method of deliberate practice, we might be simply training them in purposeful practice because we just don't ha have access to um, either the goals of a deliberate practice regimen or we're trying to do something else with those arts. Um, and so if we think about restoring some of the common arts, for instance, or engaging in certain types of sports training or games or athletics, purposeful practice often is what we'll have to make do with. And I think that's important to know. Now, as we delve into purposeful practice a little bit more and think about the ways that these crafts or artistry is different and how they are different from moral virtue on the other hand. Craft is an intellectual virtue for Aristotle. Moral virtues are in a separate category. Aristotle makes this great point in his Nicomachean Ethics about how for him as he's delving into this book, we're not aiming primarily at theoretical knowledge or at theoretical knowledge alone as he's talking about moral virtue, he's really getting ready to introduce all the moral virtues, especially things like courage and his famous doctrine of the mean, that courage is the mean or in between. On the one hand, rashness being overly not fearful in the face of danger. And on the other hand, cowardice, which is more likely and what most human beings are more inclined to, being too fearful in the face of dangers. But he says, we're not aiming at theoretical knowledge. We actually want to be moral. We, we want to cultivate moral virtue. And so we're aiming at that sort of practical knowledge or awareness of the moral virtues. And he makes an interesting point as well about the moral virtues in general, that as he's going into them, his discussion must be in outline form. It's not going to be as precise or clear as other areas of knowledge or inquiry that he discovers and, and tries to expound upon in his different works. So I think that's important for us to have in mind as we, as educators, think about how we train students in moral virtue and as we go about the work of habit training. Of course, it's not just moral virtue that 
is susceptible to only purposeful practice and this kind of imprecise practicing in the dark, you know, bushwalking rather than walking on an established road sort of thing. It's also some of the arts, even some of the professions, you know. I told you that Anders Ericsson in his book Peak Performance had referenced teaching as one of those things, but also other sorts of um, important jobs and trades like business consulting. It's not absolutely clear or a precise science how you go about that or how you improve in your job, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't practice. And uh, I'll use the example here of actually from Aristotle. He mentions areas like this, just like in morality, it's not always perfectly clear and you can't always practice exactly what you're going to be doing. So it is true in medicine or navigation, very important ancient professions. But uh, if you just think for instance of the challenge for a doctor in medicine of having a, a patient with a tricky set of symptoms that you're not exactly sure what treatment regimen to give him, but you have to do your best and you wanna purposefully go about that so that you're trying to improve and make sure that you're helping heal and not harm in any way. But the same thing is true in say navigation, right? If you uh, can imagine being on the sea on a boat as a storm starts coming in and the exact conditions of the air and what you can see and where it's coming from and where you're going and all those details, you have to make a choice. You have to practice trying to do the right thing for both the safety of your crew and trying to get where you want to go. You can't really practice that perfectly. It's not a deliberate practice sort of opportunity, but there might be purposeful ways that a, a great navigator had set for himself or herself to try and get better at the key essentials of his craft. In the same way for moral virtue, we need constant practice that our powers of discernment might be trained to distinguish good and evil. This is what the author of Hebrews says, almost assuming it as if we all knew this. Now, some of you, as I say that moral virtue is actually more like the purposeful practice regimen, you might be a little bit uh, skeptical. You might be scratching your head. You might say, after all, we as Christians, don't we have the Ten Commandments? Don't we have this pattern of discipleship laid out in the New Testament? Aren't there clear goals in a process whereby, you know, uh, a disciple of Christ can be slowly sanctified and become more morally virtuous. It might be that the pagans had a lack of clarity, but surely with revelation, we have more clarity. And I would say you have a good point, but I do think that if we simply suppose for a moment, put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees, say in Jesus's day and their regimen of fasting twice a week, did that really give them temperance? Precisely not. And this is Jesus's point. Simply going through a standard practice regimen of I will fast twice a week in order to prepare myself for holiness in the kingdom of God and set myself apart as a Pharisee and a true follower of the true God doesn't necessarily ensure that the heart is fully right and full moral virtue has been Produced in the same way the following of the commandments by the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, all these I followed from my youth, what, 
What more must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has to, like a great physician, diagnose his real heart challenge and prescribe for him a very specific solution of giving away all he had to come and follow him so that he would break through that love of security and money that that rich young ruler had. I think it's similar for us. We are practicing in the dark as Christians. Our students are. There are some fixed points that are clear by all means. We do have a compass, none the least in the word of God itself. But as we go about the important work of habit training and virtue formation, we need to know and our teachers need to know in our schools that what we're doing is tricky. It's not a simple black and white thing. And if I can just draw another implication for this, I think the fact that we sometimes write our handbooks in such a way that we think it's a deliberate system and you can just follow a system of easy consequences for different types of infractions, I think is naive. The work of diagnosing the human heart and what's going wrong for a particular individual, whether yourself or a child under your care, is very complex and it takes discernment and um, I would say too the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be able to come alongside a child and say why are you going astray on this direction and maybe let's do this to point you a little bit back toward the middle way and the true way the higher way and so I think we can learn a lot from Aristotle's ethics and while I won't go in full detail in this article series or book here on uh, moral training, I'd point you to Patrick Egan's article or um, ebook on habit training and the kind of wisdom of Charlotte Mason about how to do that well as parents and teachers. But I think we need to have this sensitivity to the fact that we are, um, we're bushwalking here um, and inevitably so. Um, and so we need to be slow and thoughtful and methodical and use all the tools that we have to try and help push students out into the realm of moral virtue. And that doesn't mean we can set it aside. It's, if you will, the most important thing in our schools is we try and pursue this Christian classical educational renewal. And in our home education environments is the character of the young man or woman that we are raising. And so think about this aspect of purposeful practice being a part of moral training regimen. And think of what Socrates did in those discussions in the gymnasium and their role, as well as the role of habits from early childhood, something that Aristotle raised to the peak of importance in his talks. Well, let's uh, close this talk by thinking about from Aristotle some of the distinguishing marks of moral virtue as compared to all those arts, the techne. And he actually distinguishes between them by first making a comparison between grammar and music, what we would call liberal arts. He's not using that terminology yet. And how someone actually uh, in an apprenticeship model develops mastery of grammar or music. And he makes this point that it's possible 
for someone to do something or say something grammatically or to engage in something musically by chance or under guidance. And if you do some, say something grammatically by chance, that does not make you a master of grammar. Think of a, a toddler even saying a grammatical sentence. That does not mean the toddler has mastered grammar yet because he has simply stumbled upon it as if you were walking in the darkness and happen to stumble upon a road. We have no reason to think that he'll stay upon it because he doesn't even know it's there because he can't see. So that's the idea of by chance. Someone could also do something under guidance. And I think here of a kindergartner who's a teacher puts her hand over the kindergartner's hand as she is writing a sentence or a, a word, let's say. And so the fact that the kindergartner was able to write that word and form those letters correctly when guided by an instructor doesn't mean that she is yet a master of penmanship. It's actually very similar with moral virtues. A young child can do something justly, can act justly, can give back that toy after taking it under the guidance of a teacher or a parent. But that does not mean that he is yet just. And this um, kind of puts the lie to the notion that we have in our modern era that we come into the world innocent and with the moral virtues. Well, we could talk about innocent and debate about that. But the idea that we would come into the world with moral virtues is absolutely false from Aristotle's um, take. It's only by doing many just acts over a long course of time that you could possibly become just or by acting courageously many, many times with some guidance at the beginning and developing those habits that you could become a courageous person. Uh, virtues are things that are developed. They're peaks of excellence. You always start down at the bottom. And whether that bottom is neutral or, um, as we Christians believe, a place of original sin where we are fundamentally missing the mark because of our lack of God and of his glory in our hearts and in our minds and bodies. But that's another story. The point here that I'm making is that the moral virtues, according to Aristotle, need three things. In order to have a moral virtue, you need to have knowledge, a type of knowledge. I would, importing from later in his Nicomachean Ethics, say this knowledge is a practical wisdom, a phronesis, uh, ability to discern, deliberate, and perceive what is good for you as a human being, what is good and right and just, um, and how to act with regard to what is good. So you need to have knowledge. You can't, it can't just be by chance that you stumble upon the right way because we have no reason to think that you will do it again if you've simply stumbled upon it. You don't see. So there's this development of the ability to see what is good for human beings that's necessary for moral virtue. And that actually is the intellectual virtue component that we will discuss in more detail later. The second thing that you need for a moral virtue, according to Aristotle, is deliberate choice. Deliberate choice. Now this is perplexing. We might initially think, well, that you should choose something for its own good. What about habit, right? With habits, don't we not choose? Isn't that the point that in order to be morally virtuous, you should act courageously just because it's in your nature to do so. Like it's been trained into you by habit that you would respond with courage in the face of fear. And I think what Aristotle's getting at here is not an abandonment of his endorsement of habit, but um, a statement that in fact, 
that habit should have come about through a process of knowing what was good for you, courage, and deciding to do that repeatedly. You see, in the modern world, when we think of habit and hear of habit, we have these behaviorist understandings. Because of modern psychology, because of naturalistic materialism, we think of habit as sort of a behaviorist, thoughtless thing. But for Aristotle and the classical tradition in general, habit is actually thoughtful. If it's positive habit, and I make this point in the previous article, positive habits, good habits that lead us toward virtues, are thoughtful. They are embodied responses that come at the gut level and are, if you will, gymnastic, come out of this training process or regimen. But you should have chosen that regimen in order to be able to act well on, on the fly in the moment. And I think this is Aristotle's vision for us. And this would point to any sort of moral training that we're doing with our students should have their will involved, should have them deciding to go through with the process of training, which is something you see clearly in Charlotte Mason's thought but um, is lacking from some of our discipline procedures. We need to lift the child up, make her the agent of her own improvement and development morally. And, um, and of course, that's how God works with us from a Christian perspective. He, he respects in a way our personhood, that we are made in his image, and he wants to draw us with loving arms into a more righteous and holy life step by step. And he does so by his gospel, by the truth of Christ and the love of forgiveness and grace in particular. The third thing though that Aristotle says is necessary for moral virtue is a firm and unchangeable character. I think this is so important. Right? Just because you've done one just act does not make you just. Just because you've started a new habit and done it for 21 days does not mean that's an established part of your character yet. We need to warn ourselves of this. This is why the author of Hebrews talks about constant practice. It takes time to develop, years even, a firm and unchangeable character. And this is why you can't do education in a season, in a semester, even in a year. It takes so much longer than that. And um, I think in a way that some of what Aristotle is doing here is correcting a misunderstanding of Plato. Because in the Socratic dialogues, there is this sense that as Socrates goes about his process of trying to bring some sort of enlightenment to his listeners, his discussion partner, about a moral virtue like courage or temperance or piety or justice. He tries to do so by this process of helping them understand that they don't really know what that virtue is in its essence, and then to help them, you know, come to a metanoia, a sort of repentance, where they then seek to understand in a deeper way that the nature of that virtue. And so this has a kind of flavor of salvation by knowledge. If you just know truly what temperance is, you will act temperately. And there's a way in which Plato's philosophy as a whole really endorses that sort of um, idea in general. And so I think 
Aristotle, I mean, I think we might find a way of synthesizing it. I can't do that right now. But Aristotle would emphasize for us the importance of practice and habit. And uh, the fact of the matter is that it's not simply by knowledge, but it's also by knowledge-informed habit and practice uh, and that we become more like who we ought to be. And so I think that's really important for us as we think about practicing. It should be, in either case, deliberate or purposeful, as in it should be thoughtful. Um, we should not be engaging in what, what we call rote memory or rote practice with students. As teachers, we should give them regimens of practice that develop their skills and virtues in ways that involve their whole person, their, their head. That's why techne is an intellectual virtue. It's so important. And that's why morality, even moral virtues, must also have prudence, phronesis. You see, Aristotle, again, my point is, Aristotle has this holistic view of the human person that has unique insight throughout the history of the tradition, which is why it's so valuable in replacing our Bloom's taxonomy, our standard modern educational architecture of objectives and goals, because Aristotle has this sense of how we are connected as human beings. And the arts and um, moral virtues are different things. They are different things in these those three ways that I mentioned. For the arts, you just need a sort of bare knowledge because mostly we're focused on man as maker, to borrow from Mortimer Adler's Aristotle for Everybody. This is this category of intellectual virtue, techne, that is about man or human beings making or producing something in the world, following a true course of reasoning, but the knowledge isn't the thing. And that's again, one of our major shortfalls or failings as modern educators is that we tend with arts to focus on the knowledge rather than on the coaching, the skill, the practice regimen. We need to do both. We need to do just enough knowledge or rule, but then we need to work with a student on coaching them to point their toes, to follow the proper procedures and rules that will lead to excellence, and then to do it many times, not thoughtlessly, but thoughtfully. The same thing, in the same way for the moral virtues, we are dealing primarily with man as doer. It's a different category than man as maker, how you choose for yourself. And so that also has this embodied part to it and is at simultaneously has this deliberative or intellectual part to it. But it doesn't primarily focus on man as knower. Again, we try to teach ethics sometimes or teach people to be good by getting too theoretical, right? Where we just teach them general ethical principles rather than embodying a sort of habit training, development, bonded relationship, coaching regimen, where we're helping them grow into the moral virtues over a span of many, 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 many years, not a simple course, as if we could isolate knowledge. Knowledge is so important, and the peak of human ability and how we image God in many ways, those things are for Aristotle Sophia, right? The ultimate intellectual virtue of knowledge is wisdom itself. 
There's a type of wisdom that's practical, prudent. There's also a type of wisdom that's philosophical and has scientific knowledge, episteme, and intuition, noose, as its forerunner when it's focused on the highest things. So in the next um, article, we'll continue to de develop really all of this paradigm of intellectual virtues, but specifically the apprenticeship model of teaching as we continue to specifically hone in now on ways of teaching artistry or craftsmanship and how that should play an important role in our modern classical Christian schools and homeschool environment. Thanks for listening with me and engaging well with, I think, some really important topics, though some deep and complex ones. Hope you have a great rest of your day and that you go about the work of both training yourself for excellence and most importantly for godliness or piety.